Scene 15, Between Two Laughs, Peter Samuelson, read by Joshua Stenkamp, followed by original audio recording. When I was in New York, there was one performer that I kept playing phone tag with. I had also missed him twice while he performed in Orlando during the Genie Convention. After months of attempting to get together, because our schedules did not align, we made a date to talk. Normally, I'm not a fan of doing interviews via online communication, but I was not going to allow myself to miss another chance to interview Peter Samuelson. Jason and myself sat in front of my computer, drinking coffee, really excited for this conversation. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you fine. Perfect. Beautiful. How's your day today? Good. Excellent. Excuse me while I have a little lunch. I can see you're having coffee. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Please feel free. How's, uh, how's New York today? You're in Jersey, right? I'm in Jersey. Oh, in yeah. Jersey. Yeah, you just recently... It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Good, good, good. Glad to hear that. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, sorry I didn't, uh, haven't been able to make it up to New York. It's been a crazy no trip. It's been a it's been a crazy time here as well. So, sold the house, uh, closed at the beginning of March. So February was pretty much moving out, and everything's scheduled and packed. And I moved to a smaller place, so <clears throat> still surrounded by boxes. So. <laughs> yeah, so goes so goes moving, eh? <laughs> well, yeah, you know. And then there's, there's this obvious thing that I keep talking about with Karen. I say, you know, I really I don't know how long I'm going to be here, and there's a part of me that just doesn't want to unpack, right? Because you know, she goes, no, we're going to live in a place for a while, so we have to unpack. Just <laughs> keep them in boxes till I need it. Anyway, That's, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So you're down in Florida? Is that where you are? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're just south of Orlando, a small little town called uh, St. Cloud. It's, uh, it's not too far from Wizards where you performed, just 192 right down there. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. I usually stay up with the Bedwells with. Steve yeah. and Chris when I'm down there. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Steve's the one who was like, you, you really need to get uh, Peter Samuelson. And that was around the Genie Convention. And I was, we were trying to get in touch with you, and we're like, ah, we just keep missing him. Well, thanks for being persistent. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> and this is probably just as easy as trying to sit down in the city. So, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. So. So what can I what can I uh, what can I do for you? How can I how can this work out for you? What 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 makes sense? Uh, basically, we have some questions and we just ask them and we just kind of see where the conversation goes. It's really um, okay. it's really nonchalant. Um, we tr- I mean we have certain questions. Most of the time, you guys answer the questions before we even ask them. Uh, so it's just it's just kind of uh, just like a conversation, really. So it's uh, usually we start off pretty simple as uh, how'd you get your start in magic. I was tricked into it. <laughs> I, yeah, I no seriously. I, I, you know, I think that when I was a kid, I thought it was real. I was about, you know, about six when I was. Uh, I've been fascinated by magic, and I had a great aunt. Um, a long story, but family divided. Uh, great great grandfathers, great grandfathers split apart and went different places and sort of set up companies in different places. And I had relatives that have this wonderful compound up in the Adirondack Mountains, a place called Eagle Nest. The uh, 
sort of the generation that founded that is uh, gone now. So they turned it over and, and keep, kept part of it for family, but the rest of it is all, it's an artist's colony, writer's colony, and they do it for all sorts of, you know, residencies and internships and things like that. So I was up there one Christmas with my mom, and my great aunt got me a magic set for Christmas, and I was thrilled by it until I opened it and realized it was all tricks that you had to work on. So uh, I really was disappointed, and I told her she got me the wrong set. So it was about five years later when I was at a school assembly, and I remember specifically going in and seeing a magician come to the school and perform. And I remember him doing two things that sort of stood out in my brain. Was One of them was serpent silk, which I remember. And the second thing was a lodeball, which sort of kept going obviously running as a running gag throughout the whole show. And I remember going home at that point, turning to my mom and saying, yeah, okay, so I know it's all tricks, but I want to learn about this. I want to figure this out. And so she went out uh, and checked among her friends. We were in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was a faculty brat. My father was a professor of mathematics. And uh, found a friend who had a copy of Modern Magic, mm. which is still behind me up in that bookshelf. Right? Yep. Nice. So, uh, I'll be great. You can see it right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and that's sort of stayed with me, and I started building a little stage in my basement, putting together orange crates and made a magic thing, built a tip-over box, and, you know, really started to put a servant on the back of my table and said, okay, I'm going to start doing shows. You know, so that's really where it began. Uh, nobody else that I knew was really interested, so I got friends of mine interested. And junior high school came around, and I started a magic club at our junior high school, which got some people interested again, and then moved on to high school. Tried to start a magic club there as well, and found that there were other guys who were interested uh, at the same time. And so that's really where it all began. Ended up going to Abbott's at one time during that high school or, you know, a get-together. And uh, turns out that really at the same time, Charles Reynolds was there at the University of Michigan, and I had no idea. So, so there was a collector in Ann Arbor, a guy named Charles Rolfs. I was dating his daughter, and I don't remember whether or not I started dating her first, she was a year ahead of me, or... I started going to his house first because he then became sort of the sponsor for our club. So, so that's kind of where it all began. And then I hit California for college and pretty much stopped doing magic for a while. I'm actually just, I'm just actually writing about that right now. You know, I've got this uh, series of columns I'm doing for MUM. I'm not a member of SAM or of the IBM. I've never been a member of anything except for, really except for the Magic Castle. Uh, but Michael Close kept chasing me and saying, come on, write for us. And I was going, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> listen, you know, you do it and you'll have a book at the end of it. And I've been trying to republish theatrical close-up, sort of re-updated. I started working on theatrical cabaret as a follow-up version of that. 
And so I thought, well, okay, all right, this will get me to actually write on a regular basis and force me to write that. It's good practice. So you, you went to school for physics, correct? I did. I started out in an advanced physics program at Stanford. Do you feel that uh, that physics helps you in any way with magic in correlation? No, uh, I, I don't think specifically physics itself does, but the way of thinking about things, sort of wanting to reconstruct and figure out how things work and how they interplay. So, yeah, you know, my... My high school years were filled with theater because I was doing like children's theater and junior theater and doing all that sort of stuff. Music, I was uh, playing first chair trumpet in the orchestra and the marching band and that sort of science stuff that was going on with the physics and the math and the other things that were happening along those lines. Um, so it was really a, this broad spectrum that they kind of, I guess, looked for as well for this. Um, so the magic had been there as a hobby, the music had been there, the theater had been there, the physics was, you know, really fascinating, but physics is so, I mean, it's such an abstract structure, you know, I and mean, it really is, and it's all, you know, if you, if you lose the language skills of the mathematics, you lose physics, and I went back and looked at some of those old textbooks and went, oh. <laughs> really, I mean, I, I, I I've talked with other people who've sort of been in similar situations, and uh, it's like, you go back and you just go, I have no idea. Right. Um, Interesting. What? Do you have a question? I was just thinking, so the, like the scientific process of way to think, you, you feel like that has helped you as far as like approaching magic and um, how in, since, because this, our book is really about character development, right? More mm-hmm. so than the actual, you know, physical tricks. Does right. do you do you feel that it's helped you there too? It is a way to deconstruct, or you know, uh, I have a, a great love and affection for mystery stories as well. Mm. Um, going back to early readings and uh, and. Uh, Conan Doyle, obviously, from early yeah. on. Uh, not so much Agatha Christie. I never was really taken with her. Um, but Peter Wimsey stories that were happening in there. Um, Henry Merrill. Um, so uh, there, are, there are a whole series of writers. And, and the thing that's, uh, including focus on locked room mysteries. Mm-hmm. So this idea of, I think, I think that what physics ties in with the sort of the, the part of magic that is the technical part of magic is understanding how things function, how to make them work, um, what's the underpinning, what's sort of the, the through line that, that carries these through, um, and the surprises that happen when you try to, when you think you've got things kind of nailed and then you get turned and twisted about stuff. So it's an understanding that you can come close to things, but you have to still keep working and testing and asking questions. And and the thing about uh, uh, that's kind of parallel between the physics and where you're going, which is the character development, is this whole idea of, of things that drive the world that are not obvious and are often unspoken. 
And so there's this whole layer of acting and, and theater, which is the subtext. Right. You know, the unspoken script. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the section which says that I've got hidden objectives, things that I don't obviously state as being what I'm going for, but things that I want. Uh, and as a character, as an actor, you have to always be asking those questions. What is it, what is it you're really going for? And uh, oftentimes you get to that realizing that it's never verbalized. So, and I think physics kind of ties in with that in an interesting way, in the same sense that there are underlying rules and laws which may not be obvious on the surface, but that's what you strive to understand, is what's hidden beneath the surface. So I think if you're going to find a, a connection, it's this desire to, to sort of sort stuff out, figure out how things work, uh, and then discovering things that make things work that are not necessarily obvious. Do you find that you're a character on stage? Yeah. It, you know. <laughs> like, is it, is, it, is, it, is it a full-blown character? Is it more just a heightened sense of you? It or? depends on the show. It depends on the show that I'm doing. So, you know, uh, a couple years back, I uh, so I've... I've when I moved to New York, I I didn't throughout the college years. I moved from the a focus on physics to a focus on theater, and that was kind of a little circuitous route. But um, basically, it came about because I realized that there were people in the physics world that were a lot smarter than I was, and for whom the mathematics and the physics and the conceptualization and the abstract qualities that you need to be able to embrace there for them it was easy. And it was the sort of thing that they could make poetry out of mathematics. They really were able to understand this on a level that was a struggle for me. And it may have been that I just gave up too quickly, too early. Um, but it felt like it was a lot of work and that I was going to be good at it, but I wasn't going to be great at it. And <coughs> so I was kind of parking lot for a moment, this whole thing about, about um, the reason why we do things in our lives. We'll come back to that later. But this idea was that in theater or in magic, which eventually was where I took the theater, uh, that since it's a live performance, there are, there's a chance that you can actually really seriously affect somebody in one of the shows. You can move them. You can make them think about things. You can make them feel. You can make them um, uh, appreciate a part of their life. Uh, and the feeling that I had was that that was never going to be possible for me with the physics. I was going to do lots and lots of work, and I'd be really good, but I'd probably end up working for Dow Chemical and going sterile by the time I was 30. So <laughs> I went, that's not my fault, And so I really, I thought, well, well you know, this idea of, of theater is an interesting one because, first of all, you can create your own material as well as there's a lot of written material that's out there, so you have this opportunity to explore a wide range of stuff. You get to play, literally, um, by playing characters or directing. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that was happening in the theater world and a lot of experimental stuff. I was fascinated by Japanese no theater techniques and the way that you can have, just by controlling the lighting and the angle of a face, a, a no Japanese mask can seem to cry. I mean, I remember sitting in a, in a no theater presentation and swearing that I saw this mask cry. And, you know, it's just lighting, and it's just the way the actor moves. And this, so you realize that you can create real experiences for people, sometimes with really simple things, um, and sometimes with just delicate understanding of how things 
work and how they interplay. So, uh, so the theater was really an exploration, and it was a time of politics. So we're going to parking lot that politics right next to why we do. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Um, but the but the opportunity to work in theater and to play and to do experimental stuff. At one point, I was directing with my girlfriend at the time, um, uh, who then moved to New York. We moved to New York together. Uh, we directed a Japanese no adaptation of Macbeth. Uh, Kurosawa had done Throne of Blood, but I had never seen it. I didn't even know it existed. So it's kind of like, oh, I just invented this really cool thing. <laughs> no, you didn't. Uh, but, but it was interesting. And we got to work with some very interesting actors on that, including one of the people who we worked with was Sigourney Weaver, who was my chief witch. Hmm. She was the, the main witch in this production that we did at Stanford. That's where she did her undergraduate work. Huh. Uh, so there were there was sort of lots of very interesting work that was going on. And uh, moving to New York to do theater was kind of a revelation because I realized that in New York it was a business. Theater really is a business. And uh, yes, you can do a lot of work, uh, but you're not going to make a living if you're doing a lot of the experimental work unless you get funded in one shape or form right. to do that. So compacting this little part of the story, uh, I realized that I wasn't going to be a very commercial actor. So I realized also that uh, we had put together a summer theater company, my girlfriend at the time uh, and my uh, distant cousin of mine who was connected up to that little space I was telling you about, that little place even that stuff in the Adirondacks. Uh, one of our relatives had founded the Adirondack Museum, which is a beautiful museum up in Blue Mountain Lake. And uh, there was housing available to the staff. So we had put together this summer theater company. There were 10 of us. Uh, and we took it, funded it, and took it up to the upstate New York and did tours of little communities presenting three different shows, and the first community we went to had already seen the melodrama that we had scheduled and rehearsed and planned, and when we found that out, we thought, well, oh, what are we going to do? And Barbara turned to me, and she said, why don't we do a magic show? And I thought, well, yeah, I've got ten people. I should be able to put together a, a pretty interesting show on this, and so we did. Uh, coming back from that and auditioning for various things, I got cast in a children's theater presentation of Pinocchio then toured out of New Orleans for 10 weeks during which time we performed for 80,000 kids <laughs> that's incredible it was just, I mean it was just amazing uh, you know and the guy was great he, he came up to New York he had beautiful sets built he hired me to do magic and play a role in this in this show um and uh, and then we lived out in New Orleans and drove out. He booked a big theater, bussed in schools from all around, moved them in, moved them out, did several shows during the day, then moved on to the next auditorium. And it was a really good model and uh, worked really well, and we did really good shows. It was really quite wonderful. Original music was written for it, and it was great. And it gave me an idea of the fact that you could actually take stuff out on the road mm. and do the cool stuff. Right. Oh, okay. Interesting. You can actually fund stuff like that. <laughs> Good realization. Uh, yeah. 
so so that was really great. And I came back, and then I started. Uh, I came back to New York, and I realized that the magic seemed to be kind of kept sort of putting food on my plate and uh, feeding me, and had the chance to be theatrical. And I became one of the resident magicians at the Magic Townhouse. with myself, Wesley James, and a guy named Al Cooper, not known really in the magic community, but a guy who was more of a gambling hustler, uh, friends with Gene Mays and folks like that. Right. So. You know, Sort of very underground and not real well known in the magic community, but because he didn't want to be, but was really good card handler. Mm. Uh, and kind of a real kind of tough New York guy, yeah. the kind of guy who walks down the street. One of the you know somebody makes a crack about his wife and he pops him, uh, breaks his hand, and then spends the next month in a cast working on his one-handed bottom deals. <laughs> so, <Yes>. You know. <coughs> You know, every occurrence an opportunity to work on card magic. Right. So, and so, so this, all, you know, this all started, uh, sort of progressed and, and grew out of that. Um, so this is, and then New York was there, and I was working at the townhouse, and I'd been doing some college shows. My girlfriend, we were taking it out, and she was doing sort of mime and stuff, and I was doing magic, and we'd work together and put those out. And uh, eventually, I had a couple of agents came to the magic townhouse looking for talent. I guess they were, I don't know if they heard about me or why they were there, but they came up after the show and they said, I was just doing close-up, and they said, yeah, we, we, we really like your, your style, we like what you do, and like to have you come out and work on this cruise. And I went, um, okay, all right. They say, what is it? And they said, well, it's a, a cruise, um, it's a, a part of the world cruise on the Holland America Line on the Rotterdam. And I went, okay. And they said, call us tomorrow. And um, I I don't know what it was, whether I didn't believe them or whatever. I didn't call, so they called me. They said, no, no, we're really serious. We want you to work Los Angeles to Hong Kong. And I'm going, are you sure? I'm really? You just saw me do close. Yeah, but you do stage, right? You do college? I said, yes. Yeah. You not have to see. No, no, I'm sure it'll be fine. And so uh, I uh, eventually that all came to be, and I ended up, and that started 17 years of working on various cruise ships. And, uh, it was it was there, and it was, it was a great thing. Th throughout your career in magic, yeah. especially when you were starting out and doing the cruise line, would you work in new routines, or did you have your set? Would you slowly work in? Did you try something new on stage because you were doing it for so many people and such a big turnaround? That makes so sense. I would work on new pieces, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is that that uh, there are a lot of opportunities that happen at my group at the time, uh, and a lot of them had to do with the fact that you were working with seasoned pros. I mean, I was, you know, I was wet behind the ears. I was still green. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff. I I kind of came out of this experimental theater stuff and trying to do my own stuff, and wasn't part of show business, uh, and so. For some reason, they liked me, and they thought that the stuff was at least interesting enough uh, to work on there. Um, and I, I you know, there was quite a bit of material, and I sort of re, I reworked part of it. And meeting up with both the pros that were on there and the musicians that were on there was fabulous, because in the beginning, I'd kind of done some stuff with recorded music, uh, but having a live band is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I was working with Adam, and the musical directors would often just play some stuff for me and then eventually I had charts written. I had other acts who said, yeah, use our arranger, have them do this, why don't you have them do this and that? Or the musical director would say, I've got this. 
I've written up the charts for you, and that, you know, so here, take the next ship you're going to do, and you pay for that, but right. not a lot, considering what you're getting. Yeah. Uh, and I still use, I still to this day use the music that was created for me on the ships. The music that I uh, use for the snowstorm is a piece that was written to me, written for me, and basically improvised by one of the musical directors on the ship. Wow. Uh, exactly. He said, let me do this for you here. And I went, okay. <laughs> we went into the studio and he recorded it. It's still what I use. Wow. And the, the timing of it is, is right there. So I know, I mean, I've been doing it for so long that I, I know what it is. Um, the umbrella piece that I do called uh, Lady Fair and Mr. Smooth. There's one that uh, Jay Marshall saw this and he said, you know, that's, that's the best mutilated parasol I've ever seen. And it's a, it's a great piece. I use it all the time, and I use it for magic conventions and other things, um, because uh, most people throw away the mutilated parasol. And this is a seven-minute piece with two people from the audience. It gets a lot of entertainment value. It's funny, and it's, it's great. But that was written for a, a, a tour I did for Revlon back in the 70s. Mm. And uh, Jack Adams and myself and a guy named Michael Albright from the West Coast uh, were hired by Revlon to do a national tour for a show that they were putting together, a promotion they were doing called Color Magic. And at the last minute, they came. Uh, Jack and I were out in New York. Michael was out on the West Coast, and uh, and they came to Jack and I. And they said, "Well, we've got this this uh, new fragrance for men, Chaz, and we've got this promotional umbrella. Can you use this for something?" We went, "Yeah, we got. We'll have tubes." Phantom tubes made up that look like lipstick, and we'll pull out handkerchiefs and the colors of the lipsticks that you guys are selling, and then we'll use that for the mutilated parasol. And Jeez. so we did that. And I took that script that I had written for that, uh, which was a love story, uh, and it was a love story about the saga of Lady Fair and Mister Smooth bring two people up, and it's a story. And remember, this is mid seventies late 70s is starting. Uh, and so in this story, we have a young lady and a young man. He's just purchased a new umbrella. They're out walking. He's very romantic. He's shielding her from the sun. Uh, and they spot a tree, and they start to talk. And he puts away the umbrella, and they start to talk about all their future things that they're going to do, trips to the Acapulco, a house in the country, and house in the city, his career. Yeah, his career. And her home raising the kids. <laughs> Wait a second. You mean her career and him home? And this argument develops, and they split up. And so, in the course of this, then she takes the the handkerchiefs. They go back into a little purse of hers, and they exchange with the umbrella cover. So, in the middle of the rain, he's might be looking good, but he's all wet. She, on the other hand, is totally protected and covered. And the, and there's no returning of the cover. It's just one way. Right. Uh, and we use the normal umbrella because we are using the magic hands concept of how to do this. Which they did uh, and published. I actually, yeah, I, I actually wrote about this, wrote up a little bit about this in, in, the, in the recent uh, one of the articles for NUM, um, and it was great. And that piece then kind of has stood the test of time. I still do it with the with the original script, no references to Revlon, but that same structure of this, you know, this conflict that exists right. between the men and the women of who gets to pursue their dream, who's has to give it up, or do they both have to work? When, this, when you're scripting, uh, do you what process do you go through? Is it do you hear a piece of music and you instantly come up with a story? 
Or is it the other way around that you'll write a story and find music to it? That's a great, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really great question. This one, the story was written and the, the structure. So a magic effect has built into it a certain structure. Right. And one of the things that I found is that when you design magic for a musical, for example, uh, that it's difficult because music has a particular structure that is not exactly the same structure as magic. Magic has a dramatic build. Uh, it has to build to a point of sudden revelation, uh, of a surprise, of a sudden transformation or something. Uh, and then there has to be sort of a denouement that follows this, a little a little rolling off of this, with place for people to appreciate what's going on. Mm-hmm. Magic has this need to have time happen. So things have to be established. Then you have to be clear about what goes on, and there's some process that has to go on, and then there's sudden change. It's not the same with music, which might have a theme that gets introduced, this gets repeated, uh, gets built on, maybe gets developed on the theme, and then suddenly there's a final resolution, and you sort of okay, and then you're you're done with that piece. Um, so magic and music don't necessarily work easily together. But sometimes they do, and music is a great support for magic. Uh, but you have to be careful about choosing it and editing. And so I oftentimes will edit the music. For Lady Fair, the musical director on the ship had been improvising stuff behind me, and eventually codified it and said, "Okay, I've got it," and has now written music. And now I have charts for that, and that actually went into the studio, and now it's recorded. And I used to record this music for all my shows. So it's seven minutes, and I just have to make sure I hit the musical beats while still working with the characters, because there's no... It's just one solid piece that goes all the way through. How do you find um, like improvisation points? Or do you? Are you so scripted and, and in that structure that you can't really move out of it? Uh you know, it de- again, it depends on the routine. Since I'm working with people here, uh, it definitely has improvisation points. And that's the lovely thing about it. There's, you know, I, I know there are points that I have to hit, but I also, and I, and I can't be completely freewheeling on the improvisation, right. but I really can let the people do things. And stuff comes up in every show that you can either comment on or play off of or somehow um, utilize. Sure. In finding the humor or the characters, and just the, even if you just you see that uh, the the guy is because I often work with younger people on this, uh, uh, and I I can do this with kids or adults; it doesn't really matter. You know. hmm. But sometimes the kids are really shy, or sometimes yeah. the kid is really has bravado and gets right into it. And sometimes they get very dramatic and they just get into the spirit of it. And sure, sure. no matter what they do, uh, the more involved they are, the better. Uh, yeah. So some of it is just timing, trying to make sure that I keep them on track. But yes, definitely improvisation for them. Yeah. Uh, cool. So the question of whether or not the music comes first or the or or the script <laughs> comes first is a really great question, uh, and it, it goes both ways. It goes both ways. I mean, I do a, a close-up piece called the "Smoke" that uh, is um, based on uh, the music is Paco Bell, the canon indeed. And uh, and the trick, the, the routine, grew out of the music, as opposed to this. So this was early days in California, sitting around 
toking up and trying to remember how many tokes of hash we'd actually had. <laughs> was that three or was that four? <coughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, um, so, so and, and listening to music, I remember listening to the Papa Bell and really having this vision of, of because of the way the music moves and floats, um, it's, it's repetitive and it's a canon. So it keeps going on. So I have really had this internal image of, of being on a raft at sea, sort of, so the water's moving you, uh, completely surrounded by a fog bank. So you never know where you're going, but if you're in this gentle, supported, this beautiful feeling of this, of somehow protected. And so I started, um, so when this idea that I had of, of taking smoke cocktail, um, I may have even seen Mullica do this thing with the glasses and, and pouring smoke from one glass in another and then drinking it. I realized that I wanted to use smoke in a wine glass. You'll see, I, I use this image uh, quite a bit of pouring a, a glass, of, a, of a wine glass filled with smoke that gets poured out. And you can do that if the room is still, if the, if the air is still. You can fill a glass with cigar smoke, which is what I used to use at the castle before they banned Cigarette, um, and I would fill it. Vernon used to come in and watch this when I was doing it. It was so great that we would keep bringing people in. It was really lovely. Awesome. So the wine glass would be filled with smoke, and because it's a little heavy, uh, it'll sit in the glass, and you can tip it out and pour it out, and it pours like water onto the map. And it's just so this feeling of the Pachelbel with the movement of the smoke, and then out of the smoke, things appear. So out of the wine glass, a coin appears, and then fill the glass with smoke, it vanishes and reappears back inside the glass. So it then keeps growing and building until eventually it ends up with this huge, tremendous point. So that <clears throat> that was inspired by the music that came to that. That plus the visual image that joins that. And I think a lot of times music can bring you emotion and visual imagery. So that's one source. And sometimes it comes from trick or the meaning, so I'll give you another example of that, which is uh, in Heartstrings, in my presentation of Gypsy Thread, the uh, the piece had been in my mind for a long time. I, I remember seeing Max Landano back at a Columbus Magi Fest when I was a teenager or college, whatever, um, taking a piece of thread and tearing it apart into little pieces and then putting it back together again. And I remember watching Gypsy Thread and, and uh, feeling like it was it was about something. It, it's it's it, there was something about it that I really liked about this piece, but I didn't know what the presentation was about or why it mattered to me. And I worked with uh, I worked in an improvisational acting group in New York, <clears throat> which was came out of Second City in Chicago, and the guy came and worked in New York, ran a, a class on that, and then he moved up to Toronto and started SCTV up in Toronto. Oh, right on. My name's Sheldon Tinkin. And so I, I worked with him, and we did several, we did some Clifford Odets pieces and a bunch of other stuff. So, but this was improvisational acting technique on the Spolin techniques mm -hmm. that came out with the story theater with Paul Sofiola. Exactly. And... Uh, and, and and so I had friends in that group that I was working with, and I called upon a, a woman named Judy Green Theory, and I, I asked her to come and work with me on the thread because I, I didn't know what it was about. So we would 
go through the piece and I would just improvise lines. I would just work on this and just talk about the stuff that was happening. And we would just record the stuff and then I would go back and I would transcribe and then we'd get back together again and work on it until we finally scripted um, the piece that I thought was right for it. Uh, and that is the script I now use. And I've used it ever since the 80s. Uh, and out on the ships. You know, I was doing... You know, I, I had a... I had a, a Borsalino hat. I, look, I was in sort of this costume of an impresario, and I'd come out this long thing, and I I hung out with McBride in, in New York when he was still living in New York, and worked out a whole bunch of stuff. And so there's a little opening sequence with uh, Kikuchi fire and flames being tossed in the air, and <clears throat> uh, silk handkerchief out of the fire turning into a cane that comes off, and the hat roll, and that gets put away, and and <clears throat> the scarf coming off and blowing a kiss to a woman in the audience and catching the kiss and having it go back onto the scarf and appearing there and then producing a huge bouquet of flowers out of that which you gesture to her uh, and so you know there's all this stuff that was sort of very um, cabaret-ish that happened in there and it was fun being able to work with Jeff uh, New York scene was a great vibrant scene still is or it is again but it was wonderful working back in there um, and so I was out on the ship and I'd been doing all this sort of this bigger stuff straitjacket escapes I'd been doing my snowstorm that was out there I was doing mind reading and mentalism as a second show and I was cruising up and down through the Alaskan inland passage inland waterways that are up there sailing from Vancouver up into Glacier Bay and then back down again this was the early ship days. I was also spending about half the year out on colleges and half the year on ships. So, um, and so I'm out there and working this inside passage doing all these shows and the cruise director was a Canadian guy named Alan Scott. And Alan would get up in the afternoon and during the tea section as they're cruising through these beautiful waterways would read poetry the people. And I'm going, really? On a cruise ship? I mean, you know, I'm used to being in the Caribbean where that, you know, and then we're this very gentle guy and reading, and I thought, well, you know, if he can read poetry to these people, I bet I could do my gypsy thread for these people. Uh, and I'd always just done it close-up. I developed it, originally it was being done, I was doing it close-up at the Magic Townhouse, and and other places, mostly magic for Elam, like that. Um, and I went, okay, well, let me try this. So I went up on, on stage, and I did this the first time, and after doing this a couple of times, the musical director would just play some stuff behind me. And the guy named Scott the, Kirk, the Turk was the, the, Bruce, was the, the musical director of this, and he said, I'm working on an opera uh, that he was writing. He said, I've got a, a theme in the opera that I think would be beautiful for you behind the thread piece. And I said, really? <laughs> I'll, I'll play it during the next thing. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll chart it out for you and uh, see how you like it. And I went, this is just beautiful. Just gorgeous. And so, uh, and so when I was recording all the pieces, uh, the guy who improvised the snowstorm piece came in and, and performed this in the studio and we recorded it. Uh, and, and I'm using Scott the Turk's music still from that time, and he basically gave it to me for use in the show. So sometimes the music is custom written, and that's by far ideal for you if you can do it. 
uh, if you've got quality and good stuff to work through. Uh, sometimes you take music that exists and it inspires it, and sometimes you just take pieces that are there and make them work because they're the right tempo or feeling or social construct for it. And they work really well with um, I, uh, a routine that you've got because they may comment on it or they may give you a context for it. And ultimately what gives meaning to the magic is the context. It's how you wrap it. Um, and that's where the story comes in. Uh, I, there's a, from, you remember, there used to be a TV show years ago called All in the Family with Archie Bunker. And, so this was directed by the guy who helped found People for the American Way, a guy named Norman Lear. I was a television director and sort of political activist and uh, very sort of left-wing. And here he's producing this comedy show with this real redneck Archie Bunker who's, you know, this and this. And people say, well, how can you, how, how, why, do you, why do you do this? And he said, you know, the interesting thing is you can say anything you want to as long as you package it between two laughs. <laughs> and I thought, that is just great. And the same thing works with magic. As long as you can package something in this, in this the wrapping of amazement and amusement, you can almost sell any political point of view or, or thought that you want to get across. Uh, and and so keeping that in mind, I realized that that it, it kind of works both ways. It kind of works both to as a structure where if you create a context or a wrapping for a magic effect, it gives it meaning. But also, you can give meaning to an idea or give impact to an idea by doing the magic. So, with the gypsy thread, with heartstrings, I know that the script and then the musical support for that does work that way. That the magic itself becomes powerful to people. And I, I'll give you two examples of that. I'll give you three examples of that. Um, and again, I, <clears throat> this just happened last fall, and uh, it's, it, I, I wrote, I mentioned it in one of the write-ups I did for, again, for the MUM column. I'm finding a lot of stuff that's an interesting place to put it. A woman came up to me after the show that I was doing, and she was a young woman, but she had scars kind of like all over her body. They were healing, but they were still, you could tell they weren't completely healed. They were kind of there, and I couldn't quite tell. She came up and she said, I, I don't know if, if you meant it this way with, with the piece you did with the thread. She said, I, I'm going to get really emotional here. And she actually starts to cry. And she said, I don't know if you meant this, but to me, it, it said to me that even if things are broken and damaged, that they can be made whole again, and 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 you, it was so clear that she was talking about herself and her life and the things that were going on in her life that I realized that this was the one person in the audience that gets affected by your performance. That way back when, when I said that I turned my back on physics because I thought I would never have this impact, but in theater you can, and if there's only one person in the audience that you reach that means that that performance was worth it. Um, and there was that person. 
two years before, I'd had a woman come up afterwards and she said, I'm, I'm legally blind and I loved your show. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Any favorite parts? <laughs> she said, I love the snow storm because I could kind of see that. And she said, I love the, the thread piece. I said, you love the thread? I said, yeah. She said, because when you were breaking it, I could hear it break. And it's one of the things that I always talk about when I lecture on this is that I, I use a type of thread that when you break it, it makes a noise. Mm. So it doesn't, it's not soft. It actually goes, and I always do it next to the microphone so it can get picked up so that people can hear it. And I also drape it over the arms the way Ali Bongo wrote, wrote it up in Ganson way back then. Um, so that against the dark jacket, it stands out. It's really clear. Uh, that plus I, bring all the lights down to a single spotlight. Um, and again, I talk about that in the lecture about why you do that. And uh, that's just the stagecraft of allowing people to uh, to use increasing resolution in their vision. We, we, can't, we don't have zoom lenses in our eyes, but we have more resolution than we use. So if you limit the area you're looking at, you can actually see more and make it in your mind bigger, zoom in on it and see detail. Because usually we use very low resolution. It's like Google Maps. You know, you zoom in, you're still at the same resolution, but you're just taking the resolution from this area and bringing it up. You don't have to draw everything at high resolution right at that. You just focus on that area and get the resolution. Anyway, um, so, so this woman was able to hear that and was moved by that. And the other thing is, Several years before that, I'd been hanging out at a bar in my, not far from where I was living, and uh, I was sitting at the bar having a drink, and a woman came up to me, and she said, are, are, are you a magician? I went, yeah, I am. Uh, she said, I saw you about a year ago. I said, yeah. And she said, yeah, and you did this piece, you did a thing with a piece of thread, and I was just thinking about that today. So here are three times when, for me, where I've had the validation that, that, that by framing a piece of magic and giving it something more than just this is a trick, but allowing people to make the connection into their own lives so that the magic itself is not just the magic. It's, just, it's the medium for you to talk about something that matters. It's the packaging between two laps. It's the finding the way for people to connect with you via the magic. So the magic then becomes your vision, your painting, your sculpture, your artwork, uh, because this is what you have to say. So now, the parking lot. Let me talk about Okay. So back in the 60s, uh, when I went to Stanford, it was in the middle of sort of the ramp up, the height of the sort of early beginning and height of the Vietnam War, and people were getting drafted and people were getting killed, and, and, uh, and it's funny because I just, I just dragged out my draft card earlier because I was just writing about parts about this earlier today. And, uh, and I, I really decided that I had no interest in doing the magic. The magic just felt so trivial to me. Felt like there was no reason to do it. It was there was it was so meaningless in the face of all this other stuff that was going on. And I realized that 
that I, I felt like the government was doing a better job of fooling people than I could ever do. So what was, what's the point of doing the magic? And so I really turned my back on it. I ended up doing some because it just happens that way and you get asked to do uh, that sort of with, uh, you know, in theater. I do some stuff. So, and it was only afterwards when I realized finally that, yeah, the magic can have content. It can be your theater. It can be more than just about fooling people. Then I went back to it with some understanding and some desire to really make it, um, make it uh, a life's work in a way that I could make it theatrical. So this sense of meaning, of trying to find something that you do in your life that matters, because at the end of your life, uh, unless you're fortunate enough to have kids, I don't have any, or crazy enough to have kids. <laughs> well, I guess if you have kids, you will be crazy. Right. <laughs> so I can attest to seeing my friends go through them. Um, that, that, uh, and I know I drove my parents they, 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 right. what's what's the joke they say they say that uh, in, insanity is is hereditary you get it from your children yes. and, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, and so in order to try and do something in your life where you can at the end of this, this life you sort of go okay I did something worthwhile in this world uh, because coming from a, a, a family that emigrated from Europe and from you know they, they fled Germany and I lost family in, in the Holocaust, and you know, there's something that in this, I think that I was brought up by parents for whom doing something that mattered in this world is really important. Um, and to sort of have, leave the world better than you found it, have done something you had enough. And so the magic felt like, unless I could figure out a way to do that with the magic, that it was kind of like, okay, it's fun, enjoyable, but doesn't really lead me anywhere. And so that's where this whole time during the 60s, this sort of this crucible that I was, you know, this melting pot that where people were forced to confront um, the value of what their choices were in their lives and whether or not it mattered. And that was partly because you could just get picked up and sent over and this could be the last, you know, time you're here. In the, so, mm. you know, this, uh, this, this feeling was really definitely... Um, you were brought to understand that your life had to be, in the end, matter somehow, somewhere. Right. So, hmm. so I think that that's where it kind of got to me. And and not all you know, not all the magic is going to do that. You you know, you can't expect every little bit that you do to have that kind of impact or that kind of meaning. And it's certainly not every situation you do in. And when you ask about characters and do I play a character on stage? And I said, it depends on the show. It also depends on the situation. You know, if you're doing walk around magic at a cocktail party for, you know, thirty something hedge fund managers, you know, uh, I'll do extreme burn and have a great time doing that sort of stuff and imagination coins. And I'll do, you know, I'll do stuff with them. Or I'll do, you know, I'll do mind reading stuff for them. And I'll do stuff. But yeah, or if I'm doing work with improvisational theater or, or, or avant-garde theater companies, which is some of the stuff I started doing back in the 70s. And I did a show called Radnevsky's Real Magic. And this was a thing that I did 
2009, something like that. Uh, and it was with a company that I had consulted for back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, they came out of Joe Chapin's Open Theater and other places like that. Good stuff goes back there. Uh, it was a, a group called The Talking Band, and they were wonderful, wonderful folks. And I really liked the work that they were doing. And I went back to Paul, you know, after after uh, 9-11, I said, you know, I'd be interested in doing a show, a magic show. I said, my only my only uh, requirement is that we have to be able to, to think about death in this show. I just want to think about death. He said, well, I, I think about death in just about every one of my shows. I said, great. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did this show called Rednevsky's Real Magic, and he pretty much wrote the show. I worked, I collaborated with Anna, and Dennis Kiriakos. Who's a buddy of mine who was in New York and now is in San Francisco, a magician, wonderful magician as well. Uh, and I were in the show. Uh, and so this was a very strong character on this. So it was playing this character, Brad Nevsky. Um, and then within, you know, within the shows, there there's an arc of characters. So even the stuff I do for Monday Night Magic, there's an arc of character that happens. I, I have played... I played taking it as, as sort of as low as buffoonish at the beginning and then sort of take it. But now it's a it's a very specific character. I, I don't I don't name this character. Uh, not in the shows that I'm doing now. But yeah, for this one I did and uh, in way, way, way back when I did a three act one man show that I toured with colleges and universities called Standing Up and Looking Ahead. And you'd think that you would break that as standing up and looking ahead. But it was actually three acts. So the first act was standing, the second one was up and looking, and the third act was ahead. And so the first thing was all about a study of Piaget, sort of the development of a kid from birth through adolescence. Uh, the, and that was me playing the characters of the kids at different ages and costumes that actually play that and framing stuff from there. Uh, and then up and looking was about basically talking about what it's like to be on the road as a magician. So it was set up with a pseudo-interview. There was an interview on stage, but they weren't really there, but it was an interview set, and I'm sitting there having an interview, and then that would break off into sort of scenes, and each one would sort of amplify a part of the conversation that we were having. Did the show ever break the fourth wall or anything like that? Yeah, it did. It did. You mentioned Chaikin, and I know he's a big Brechtian actor, and I was kind of like, well, I was wondering if... uh... That's what you're. Are you into the to like? Because you mentioned Chaikin. I mean, are you really into yeah. that kind of Vervin Dung effect where just not having the separation? Exactly. So you know, I mean, that's the nice thing about magic is that you actually do break that fourth wall all the time. And 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 the question is, can you bring it back in and be very personal? Right. You know, I mean, the interesting thing about the thread coming back to that is it's a moment of incredible uh, vulnerability and, and and being very personal uh, in the middle of a bigger show. So. Uh, it, it's a fine line to walk between being too personal, you know, because, you know, you know, I, I love Jeff uh, McBride and, and Eugene. Um, the, the challenge with what they do is that um, unless you balance the storytelling with technique, yeah. with really good magic, it can become easily, can become self-indulgent. Yeah. And... Um, you know, one of the one of the prime dictates of magic is don't suck. So, 
you really? Yeah. Is there anything that you do? Uh, it's one of my favorite questions kind of asked. Is there anything you do right before you walk on stage to just get into the mentality of what you're about to, to do on stage? Like, is there any process that you go through right before you walk out? You know, I used to do, when I was doing a really a much more physical act, I would do stretches just before I go on. Uh, the other thing that I do is that if I'm feeling like I'm going to be easily distracted today or pulled out of it, uh, I, a trick that I learned from an actor dancer many years ago, which is uh, to basically make a choice before you go on, to choose either a color or a sound or a look or a feel or a visual process. Uh, and the minute you find yourself drifting into stuff, you sort of pull yourself back. So let's say you choose the color pink. And you sort of, and so that's what you're going to go on. So you're doing it in the midst of stuff and you go, oh, okay, well, let me explore. If I were to think of, if I were to, to make this pink tonight, not literally pink, but if I were to think about what was the aspect of this if I were to think about this or apply pink to this thing or if I were to think about this as being tympanic, you know, all tympany so there's that, so that I, I sort of have these in the back of my mind for this stuff uh, but for me, I don't really I kind of do a, a mental prop check at this point just before I go on, but I find it very difficult to do a show unless I can spend a good part of the day just prepping for it. I, I, I spend more time, I spend a lot of time sort of thinking things through as I'm showering, getting ready to go do it. I'll spend time just standing in the shower, just sort of thinking through the show and thinking through moments. Or um, These days, I'm there's a lot that's pretty much standard for me, so I will work on focusing on, as I'm developing new material, as I continue to work on pieces. Uh, so I'll think about what it is that I'm going to work on during the show in that particular piece. So I'll, I'll sort of be prepping on that. And so what ends up happening is that I sort of, that's in my mind, so I'm sort of on this trajectory to get there to work on this sort of thing so that I get there. So I don't have a real preparation, I would say. You know, I know there are some people that do, and some people play a certain song before they go on, and some people, you know, do that sort of stuff. I wanted to ask you about um, vulnerability in your pieces. Um, is it something that you're consciously looking for uh, within your magic or your character, or is it something that you think that um, just organically and naturally extends from it or grows from it? Um, It's a it's a it's a, a really good question. I, I kind of I think I'll I think I'll answer it this way. Um, that over the last ten years, I made a very conscious decision to explore comedy. Okay. Uh, I I had gotten to the point where I was feeling that much of what I was doing uh, was very personal and vulnerable and serious. Mm. Um, and my feeling was that that needed to be balanced. Sure. And I needed to find the comedic way to get at allowing people to think about things right. and to feel things. It, it's, it's more important to me to, um, to... In order for me to be happy about the work that I've written or done, it, it needs to feel like it's 
got a structure that I'm happy with, and it's got a build, and it, it, it gets where I want it to go, and it says things that are important to me. So it's not so much that it has to be intimate as it has to be valuable to me. Right. No? Yeah. 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 How, how do you feel... Um, the role of a, a being a magician, just not necessarily in a specific show, but sort of the the role of the magician. Um, how do you approach, uh, like, being a magician? Just generally, do you? It's an interesting question. I think about it a lot in my own work. What is your approach to that? Do you have specific powers that you have? Do you, uh, or is it again? Is it show based? Yeah, you know, uh, so I, for for years my alert from Fantastical Two iPhone. Yeah. Was that you or me? That was me. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was like right when that happened, a little thing popped up on my screen. I was like, oh god. <laughs> there we go. So um. So I've, I've, for years, have had this kind of a, a tagline or a, a phrase that I, I, don't, I can't do magic. Mm-hmm. I can only help you to see it. Magic happens in your mind. Right. And it's one of those things that sort of has, I, I guess I've kept that for me as, as for, for all these years only because it keeps the focus on the fact that I'm not trying to make claims to being a magician or, or you know, it, uh, I, I think that modern people, for the most part, you know, uh, certainly in the United States and in Europe, for the most part, don't believe that we can really do magic. Right. I have in other cultures found that people do. Yeah. And uh, walking around in in Africa and in the Ivory Coast, uh, I had was. Up, going up to an area to, to look for masks, and um, I speak enough French that I could get by in the Ivory Coast with that. Uh, and I'm, I start doing some unlimited coinage of silver, just producing stuff. Like that. And I eventually find the guy who's been selling the masks, and he said, "So, that, that are those those real coins you produce?" I go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, they're real. They're real." He said, "Well, um, well, why aren't you rich?" I thought that's a really good question. <laughs> How do I answer this one? <laughs> so I, I sort of dug deep and I went, wow, you know, it takes so much energy to create just one coin that if I made enough coins to be rich, it would kill me. What an answer. Yeah, that's okay. a great answer. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I think that uh, I tend to be pretty shy about this stuff. You know, oh, I... I envy, I envy Jeff. Uh, right. For, for Jeff has an attitude that I, I really love. He his attitude is basically, I if I meet somebody, I should do magic for them. Right. You know, it, yeah. it's sort of it's almost my job to every time I meet somebody, make sure I do some magic for them. I tend to be sort of less gregarious. I don't know, less confident, less whatever. So I, I tend to be more reticent about doing that. So occasionally I will do it. Sure. But, sure. But it has to be in the right situation, the right, right. Time, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, so, huh. yeah. 
so so I, I think about that but for me it's uh, the show business is, is in, in doing that stuff I, um, I still always look for fun and wonderful uh, things to do so I in walk around strolling and there's a my buddy Jamie Swiss published in Genie uh, a couple years back a, a wonderful opening walk around piece um, making little origami uh, little origami flowers and then transforming that into a real flower and giving it to people nice um, and I had to make some changes to the presentational stuff on this but I use it as a way of sort of breaking into a group because if you're in a, you know, you're working in a situation you have to if you're doing a walk around and you're a little shy I'll tell you one other story so many years I'm out walking I'm working cruise ships years ago and I'm uh, <clears throat> we're docked in LA and I call up Ricky and I and I say hey Ricky you want to get together he said yeah yeah come on over um and then we're going to get together, and my agent has got me booked to go visit. We got a dance company, and we're over in St. Lawrence. So, and it turned out that we ended up being a bunch of magicians going over and sort of hanging out this party for a dance company that this agent was. Alert from. I'll stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> so. Um, AI is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so we're doing this. We're at this event, uh, and all the magicians are in a corner over here. And all the dancers and everybody else having a great time over here, having every night. And I look around and I go, "What?" So I go and I go over and I start talking to the dancers. And I and this is a skill that you pick up when you're working cruise ships because you have to learn how to socialize. Yeah. They want you out there working with people, so you develop the ability to do level one conversations, mm-hmm. which is, "Hi, how am I from? Where are you from? Who you know? What do I know? What do you do? That sort of stuff. And what do you do?" So I'm out there and I'm just chatting with these dancers, and eventually I come back to the magicians, and the other magicians look at me and they go. How do you do that? It's like, really, like how do you, how do you talk? How, what? How do we talk to how people? How do you talk to people? <laughs> it's not a skill we develop. You know, um, we we uh, we learn how to interact and be comfortable when we're performing, right? Because the performance then provides this mask for us. That we, become, yeah. we become this character, right? Yeah. So uh, and and so when you talk about breaking that fourth wall. As that in that situation, you are breaking the fourth wall. But as the, this character of the magician, you're never the real person. You are as the character. Right. Um, and in doing walk around magic, you have to figure out a way to enter into a group of people in a way that's not off putting. Yeah. So there's some great resources for finding this. There was a great book out written. A guy named Neil Strauss did this uh, book called The Game. And it's a, you know, it's a story of the underground world of pickup artists. Yeah. And uh, he's got this great moment where he talks about entering into a group of people. And he he walks up and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I can only say a moment. But I was just talking to my friend and we came over here. And I went, oh. Genius. Walk up and the first thing you say is, oh, I'm sorry, I can only stay a moment. Right. Immediately people go, oh, well, this is okay. Uh, he's not going to be here long. So I know he's about to leave, and that's okay. So whatever it is, it's going to be. And so I started, I started doing, I started using this uh, in doing walk around magic. I'll walk up to groups of people, and you sort of walk up and say, "I'm sorry, I can only stay a moment. I have a confession to make. I wasn't always like this. I wasn't always the handsome, debonair, charming, delightful, witty, well dressed. Did I mention modest, modest <laughs> guy today? You know. And so now you've kind of gotten into this in a way. That uh, sort of lets them know that you're not going to be there long, and if it works out, you can stay. But if it if it's just that one little bit, you can leave without having uh, either needing to go. Oh, well, I shouldn't be here, or and, and so you sort of have to play it. 
But, you know, there are lots of ways that you can sort of, on other art forms that will give you insights in how to do certain things. Yes. And I found that book interesting and valuable, uh, and also stuff to avoid. But, you know, <laughs> you can do it if you want. Well, I mean, the whole concept of negging is really Yeah, 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 yeah. So. <clears throat> so. So there's that. So you know, I, I think this idea of, of the fourth wall is interesting, and, and you know, this um, the when I was doing this three act stage show, the second act, which was standing up and uh, which was up and looking, at the end of this, there'd been uh, the the question is, you know, are you ever pushed to do things that you're not comfortable doing? Are you ever pushed to you know sort of go beyond what's easy? And I, I'm doing fire eating, and I'm doing a straitjacket escape that's a strap up on land. And, and at the end of this, you can hear there's a voiceover that's going on, in music's drumming, and, a, and I was doing the straitjacket on cruise ships, but in this theatrical setting, um, I wanted this character to have a breakdown. And so in the middle of the straitjacket escape, the character falls apart and, and basically breaks down collapses at the front edge of the stage and we go to intermission with me lying in a straitjacket at the front edge of the stage. Oh, wow. Interesting. And the best part is lying there, you could hear people come up at the front edge of the stage and hearing them talk about you. And, you know, little kids go, is he alive? Yeah, I see him breathing. Yeah, he's still alive. He's okay. Like, so, you know, and then at the start of the third act, there's this whole thing where, you know, you're Basically, I'm in an insane asylum strapped into a straitjacket with a shrink saying to me, you know, only you can get yourself out of these things. You're just going to have to make the effort yourself to do this. And so, you know, so it was a, a, a very interesting and fun way to play. And I found that by doing this sort of this, this theatrical thing, you could combine this very sort of uh, presentational work as well as this interactive work with people. And, and magic kind of allows you to do that in a way that you can't always do, especially if you're going to need people from the audience. Right. Um, and then the question is, are they real people or are they parts of the cast that come on work with you? Right. And, you know, like in Pippin, where you, you drag a guy up out of the audience right. and, and cast him in the role. So, right. so and, and uh, yeah, so, so I... I <coughs> One of the things I always like to ask people is, um, I call them happy accidents, right? So things that are supposed to go one way, they don't, but it turns out better not going right than it might have if it, if it worked out. Has anything like that happened for you on stage? How do you handle those situations of things not going right? Oh man, there 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 have been some disasters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have something. Uh, I'll have to think about that. Think if there's. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. These these things where you just uh, you just never know. Uh, and you think to yourself, like, man, if I could make that happen every single time, it would just be pull this whole thing together yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and you know one of the dangers is that you is you start trying to do that again and you never be able to recreate that same it. moment yeah. again and that's a that's a challenge yeah but you know sometimes <clears throat> sometimes things just happen and and a lot of times that's kind of dependent on preparation mm. you know it, it's it's 
where it's you're ready for this thing to go wrong, but you're ready for it in so many other ways that you can just take and and, and take and play with it. I was uh, Irv Weiner had, was teaching many many years ago. Mr. Fingers yeah. um, taught this wonderful piece of uh, a burned and restored uh, paper napkin that he taught in his lectures and other yeah. things, and it's absolutely great. And there's this wonderful uh, this wonderful handling that he does on this. Where he's uh, he's doing an add-on, he has to add the piece on that he's going to burn on the, the napkin. Um, and I, I teach it, and, and I teach it in lectures, and I teach in other things, you know. And there's this moment where where he's you know he's he's in uh, he's in he's in this situation, uh, and uh, he goes to have them start to burn. You know, he has them hold up the thing, uh, and in that course of that moment, he's added on the extra piece, right, uh, right. and it's all done in this offbeat moment. Um, and I, I love this idea. The concept was fabulous, and I never really quite understood what this was about. And I was out uh, on a date in Boston. There was a woman I didn't really know well, but we're doing the same. I've been thinking about this, and then all of a sudden, I realized that what this thing was about was it's the phoenix, oh, the yeah. thing that is destroyed in fire. And restores from the ashes again. Comes back completely unharmed and reborn. And I went, oh, okay, great. So, and sometimes these moments of inspiration just hit, and you yeah. go, yeah. That's and that led to whole presentational stuff, you know. And I brought it back and I showed it to Jamie, and then Jamie was working as a bartender for Bob Sheets down in in Washington mm-hmm. at the end of Magic down there, and uh, he took it down. He worked on it, added some scripting to it, came back, and I. Uh, have done it uh, with uh, his modifications ever since, and that's what I, what I teach. So that's beautiful. Yeah. So you know, it's funny. What what other uh, accidents happen? I will tell you that sometimes uh, the other thing that, that happens sometimes is you really rely on other people. You, we get so caught up in the things that we think we sometimes can't see the cleanliness. Sure. You know, exactly. and uh, and when I work on things, sometimes I work on them for long periods of time. They're on stage, and they're really bad. Right. So, I've uh, for years I've I've loved um, Seven Keys to Bald Paint, um, Kiarek, all of a sudden, you know, the, yeah. and there are a lot of different presentations about it. And I tried way back on the cruise ships. I you know asked did I experiment with things? Yeah, I did stuff on the cruise ships where I did stuff with. A Japanese format and a, a mask appearing on my face and doing it for rice bowls and you know and, and so yeah and I tried uh, I, I tried out a mentalism piece that I wrote uh, being jealous of the fact that musicians always get all the best music in the songs and the people respond emotionally to all the music but magicians you know we so I thought well I can do a mentalism piece where I use music um, and I did this whole thing with passing out cards with different instruments on it and then doing readings on those. But at the same time, that's happening, having a bag full of musical names and having somebody check them out, put them back in the bag, and then choose one. Uh, and I used this as a way to introduce the band. The orchestra was there, so I'd have them play music, and then I'd identify the instruments that were being held by the people and, and, and introduce the band members playing those instruments and having them stop playing so there was just back one person I say well there's only one person left and that's the drummer and that means that you've got to have the drummer there is that correct yes that's correct give the whole band a nice round of applause that's great and then and then you sir you've uh, gone through the 
great reach in there, grab a grab a name of a song out of there. And these guys know hundreds of songs by by memory. Uh, you know, their fake book is they don't even need it. <laughs> I mean, they have it there if they, they call on it for something they don't know, but is this a song that you recognize? A song you could hum to yourself? Okay, don't say anything. But just think about it. Hear it in your mind. Start to get a rhythm going on it. Oh, okay. Let me have a walking bass that goes with them. And uh, let's add some horns. Uh, add some horns that are doing. It's sounding like we're getting in the right direction. Yeah. So now, and then build the whole song back up and say, so the band is now playing Take the A Train. What song are you thinking of? If it's the same song, then we've got a miracle. What is it? Take the A Train. Take the A Train. Take it away, gentlemen. Let's give them a tremendous round of applause. So, so you know, you, you try stuff out there, and I've been fascinated with this idea of the lock and the keys, and there, there have been great presentations of this. I tried it up years ago by bringing up a couple on a, a newlywed couple and chaining her to the mic stand and then bringing up four other guys and he had to come up with clever lines to find the right key that would release her so that she'd go home with him instead of one of the other guys. Uh, and that was, that was okay. Uh, I, I, I tried a different presentation of that one. I did a show called Paperwork um, and uh, in this, I, I bring out a huge stack of news. I said, you know, there are some things in life that are really dangerous uh, in, in a live performance. One of the most dangerous things you face are reviews. And I have here a bunch of bad reviews that I've suffered through. I'm still here. But this is what always hangs over your head. And I yanked up this bundle of newspaper and I chained it with a lock and brought up five people to play different reviewers from different newspapers. Um, and so you can structure it that way, and that was kind of okay, and that kind of worked. Um, and then I had this idea for doing a getting back to the romance idea with this this key and the thing. And I'm lying in bed with my partner Karen, and and we're there, and and she says, "Hey, take a look at this." Yep. And it's a picture of a, a bridge in Italy that's covered with locks. Oh wow! Love locks. And I went, oh my God, you just solved the problem. <laughs> and so I now have a piece that's called Love Locks. And I bring up a, a couple that's been married for 40 or 50 years. And I uh, I used to have, anyway, I, I won't go through this whole thing. But in any case, they, they come up and we get her to take off her wedding ring and it gets locked away in a box uh, with a key. And then there are not like five keys, there are like 30 keys. I mean, there's a bunch of keys. Uh, and he eventually goes down and gets ends up with one key and walks over and puts the key in the lock and turns the key and it doesn't open. Of course not. You expect me to do all the work here? It's like he's not even trying. Uh, but women understand this much better than men do. So I have her take out two keys and then she picks up one of the keys, hands it to him, and I said, look, she's chosen two keys out of all these keys. She's given you the key. Nice. He takes the key, walks over, and puts it in. It doesn't work. Because they never give you the key. They say, oh, yeah, honey, here's the key to my heart. They do not mean it. It's their key and their key alone. They never give it up. I mean, they never. I, I, I'm not bitter. That's so great. So, so, and, and so she walks over, takes her key, and it opens the box. And then, uh, and there's a kicker to this in that the ring that's supposed to be inside of there is vanishes in a ball of fire and appears inside of another box that she's been guarding the whole time. So 
And at the very end, uh, I give them back the keys, and they uh, take that key back, and they then um, he gets to put it back on her finger the way he did, like you know, forty years ago. And uh, you know, so this is right. So you know, I then step out of the audience, and I photograph every single time I take a picture of him putting the ring back on her finger and he goes to do it and I usually have to tell him to go down on his knee but sometimes I do it automatically That's so um, and so you get this you know you get this wonderful picture at the end of every show you know of them her awesome. him down on, on his knee so I found this nice wonderful piece that gets me to sort of rant about stuff at the same time so I get to play this character who's just you know a little wild and wacky and crazy Right. Um, uh, and yet, still, this is a wonderful little love story that happens, in and so it, it sort of it's very satisfying. But it took me many years to simplify that, and I was it took my it took Ossie Ossie Wind to, to to say to me. So Ossie has watched this, and he goes, "You know, too complicated, too many locks." Because I would had multiple locks. He says one lock. I go, but it's all about. He said one lock. I went, oh, "Okay, all right." He was right. Yeah. You know, he's right, and it got and it, it, it's really core piece. It's now my, you know, right. It's now penultimate. So the That's thing awesome. that closes is a snowstorm, but this is this is uh, this is it. Right. Uh, yeah, and I'm doing another piece that I've begun working on, you know, called the Church of the Amazing Spectacles, uh, and it's based on this idea of you know old X-ray specs. You know, the fact is that at a certain point, science becomes indistinguishable from magic. You know. At any point, really good magic becomes indistinguishable from miracles or religion. So, you know, um, this is where... So I'm now I've got this whole thing that I'm beginning to work on where it's sort of preaching the sermon. Um, and another... You know, so it's so it's it's important for me now to find the humor and the comedy, and this also is leading into certain fun characters that I can sort of inhabit during each one of these sequences. Right. Uh, so That's great. The, the, the challenge is to make it entertaining and fun, still have some content of validity to it, right. um, but without being preaching. Sure, sure, sure. Try not to suck. Yeah, try not to suck. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's the uh, great advice, right? <laughs> final words of Peter Samuelson. Try not yeah. to suck. <laughs> so um, one of the questions that Josh likes to ask, but I'll ask it this time, um, as far as advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself, hmm. knowing what you know now and the experiences and the journeys that you've been on, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Um, say yes. Hmm. Say yes to things. Don't be afraid to try things. Yeah. Take it. Take advantage of as many opportunities as possible. Hmm. I mean, I look back on this now, and I, I realize that I, uh, you know, it was challenging for me financially. You know, um, it still is, but uh, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I'm so glad that I took the opportunities to travel and to experience things when they were offered to me, yeah. you know, even though they were not hugely high paying. Still. You know, say yes, embrace those opportunities, do that stuff, and uh, don't be afraid of of, um, of of trying to say stuff that you mean. Ah. 
You know, a lot of people sort of say, be yourself, do that sort of stuff. And I think that's actually pretty good advice because, yeah. you know, it's, it's very hard. There's only one of you, and, and you know, it's more interesting to find out what makes you unique than whether or not you can copy somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say, I'd say that's pretty much what it is. I, I think the, the the other thing is that um, what is that? Um, there was this great. Let's see if I can find this here. This one screws up. Yeah. Okay. So this is this was uh, this and this was up on somebody posted this on Facebook and it, it, it's uh, this is this is Martha Graham who's I'm sorry I need to figure out I I I'll, I'll give you the attributions but this is two great dancers it was. Um, so the greatest thing she ever said to me was in 1943, uh, after the opening of Oklahoma, when I suddenly had unexpected flamboyant success for work I thought was only fairly good. After years of neglect for work I thought was fine. I was bewildered and worried that my entire scale of values was untrustworthy. I talked to Martha about that. Uh, I remember the conversation well. It was in Schraff's restaurant over soda. I confess that I had a burning desire to be excellent, but no faith that I could be. Martha said to me very quietly, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It's your business to keep it yours clearly and directly. You keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep yourself open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. As, uh, oh, this is Agnes Mill. As for you, Agnes, you have a peculiar and unusual gift, and you have so far used about one-third of your talent. But I said, when I see my work, I take for granted what other people value in it. I see only its ineptitude, inorganic flaws, and crudities. Uh, I'm not pleased or satisfied. And she answers, no artist is pleased. But but then there is no satisfaction? No satisfaction whatever at any time to find out. There's only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. Will you, will you send that to me? Sure. Thank That's you. beautiful. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? It really yeah. is. That's awesome. Oh yeah, so keep keep uh, keep doing what you do, and uh, you know, and and say yes. Just embrace your work. You know, yeah. you know. It's like it's not it's not for you to judge whether or not it's great or not great. That other people do that. You just have to do it to the best that you can do it. You know, and uh, you know, and your audience will tell you a lot as to whether or not it's it's resonating with them. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Do you have any questions for us? Uh, yeah, probably a lot, but but I think I think uh, I'll be, I actually will be very curious to see what you do 
in assembling all of these things. I'm sure that you've gotten wide ranges. It's it's amazing. Farm. Yeah, the 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 range is really amazing, but also the similarities. Really? Yeah, it that to me has been one of the most fascinating revelations of the whole process is the deep similarities that are going on. It's it's really kind of wild where you would think that performers from two completely different genres uh, still use the same process or they have yeah it's it, it's been really it's been really wild yeah what's when do you expect to be able to start putting this out December December yeah oh yeah. good yeah so yeah. we what we do is like well, I've been audio recording the entire conversation yeah. uh, so what we'll do is we'll take basically take that we'll transcribe it pick the best parts of the interview of the questions throw that into the book because everyone talks for about 90 minutes to two hours so that's gonna be a really big book so what we'll do is we'll take the best sections of the interviews put those in the book with your own little chapter and then we're going to release the audio uh as unedited so you get more information than what's in the book cool so great yeah, yeah it'll be fun and we'll send you a nice hardback copy so. Oh, I'd love that. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank yeah, you thank for you for time. sitting with us. Uh, it really means oh, a lot. Oh, pleasure. I'm so glad that we... I, this has probably ended up being a really good time for me to do this. Uh, things calm down enough to make it work. So, yeah, thanks. Awesome. Yeah. No, thank you. We'll and I'll, to, shoot, I'll shoot you off this quote. Definitely. We're, we're going to try to come up to Monday Night Magic because I, I still owe Todd Robbins lunch. So... Excellent. Yeah. Well, he should be back. He'll be back shortly. He's just out in Las Vegas. I think he's just coming back this weekend. He'll be back. Yeah, summer. I know him and Teller are going to be doing Play Dead out there. We talked about yeah, that. that's the truth. He's also been doing some work. Uh, there's a guy named Danny Doyle who's been doing uh, – He's Danny's got these gigs running down in Mexico, but he also has yeah. been working on putting together a close-up show in Vegas at a place. Nice. Um, so I think Todd's been helping him with that as well. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, please let me know when you're coming up. I will, definitely. Yeah. I'll make a trip out of it. See you later. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.